0: Uh, So, yeah, our lesson today comes from Matthew chapter 24, uh, and we're going to be in verses 36 through 44. If you would this morning, would you join me in standing as we read from the Gospel of Matthew together? But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the sun. You do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So when I was a kid, our church did a number of evangelistic events in our small town. And these were like big deals in our little town. Uh, They would be big multi-night events. Uh, They would be attended by hundreds, if not thousands of people. And uh, one of those events was called Judgment House. I don't know if any of y'all have ever experienced anything like that. Um, Judgment House was uh, a drama, and they would have scenes, little mini scenes, set up all around the church building. And I vividly remember as a young kid um, them having a, a car wreck scene set up outside. And they had a smashed car, uh, they had an ambulance, there were dead bodies like hanging out of the car and beer cans everywhere, right? So I was maybe eight and like, I remember this at our church. They also did this other thing called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, um, which they did several years in a row. And this is actually like a traveling staged drama that, that still churches do to this day. And it was all of these individual scenes, kind of like the Judgment House thing I was talking about, but it was all of these individual scenes. It would all take place on stage. And in each of these individual scenes, people would be faced with a... A decision or they would um, uh, act out in some way um, or they would express some kind of virtue or do something admirable in each scene. And, And what would happen was all of these people would eventually die in the course of the drama. And they would either go to heaven and like the angels would rejoice or demons would literally come out of the ground and drag them into hell. So just imagine being an eight Nine, ten-year-old kid, and and seeing this kind of stuff. All of these things were pregnant with this big kind of evangelical question of if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? And and what I saw as a kid was that in most cases it seemed like the people who were good or who were morally upright uh, would die and go to heaven. And in most cases, the people who had an alcohol problem or the guys that like yelled at their wife in the drama would get dragged by demons into hell. And so as a kid, I think the thing that I came away with was I need to be a good boy and I need to go to church and I need to not drink beer at the high school party if I want to one day go to heaven. And, and while I have no doubt that the intentions of the people who did this stuff at our church were to see people to come to know Christ, and it's quite possible people did come to know Christ. God is always working in spite of us, right? I came away with this very kind of works-based understanding of what salvation was all about. That salvation was more about what I did than it was about what Jesus has already done. If I didn't act the right way, God was going to punish me. So my future was totally based on what I did or didn't do. And this misunderstanding of the gospel is something, guys, that is within me even to this day. Even though intellectually, I know it isn't true, right? Even though I've grown up and I've I've read the Bible for myself and I've gone into vocational ministry and I've gotten an advanced degree in theology, even though I know What the gospel is and what Jesus has done deep within me is still this feeling of I've got to earn it somehow. I've got to somehow be good enough. And here's the thing. I am wholly incapable of earning my way into life eternal with the father. I am wholly incapable of earning my way into that. Not only am I incapable of attaining that, I'm incapable of keeping myself in it. Wholly incapable. I learned that the only way that any of those things would ever be possible, any of those things would ever be conceivable for me, a sinner, was the sheer grace of God. Right? The sheer grace of God. And the same thing is true for you. Same thing is true for everyone here. None of us are good enough. None of us can earn our way into heaven. It is only by God's grace that such a thing would be conceivable for us. And so here's the thing. There are many of us who know that mentally, but we are still trying to earn it. We know it, but we're still trying to earn it. I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day who played uh, sports competitively when he was younger And as a kid, if he played really well, then he and his dad had a great relationship. However, if he didn't play well, it might be weeks that his dad just wouldn't even talk to him. And so growing up, not only did he grow up in this kind of religious environment as well, but he grew up in a home where if I perform, then I'm gonna be in a good place with my father, and if I don't perform well, I'm not gonna be in a good place with my father. And whether we realize it or not, our experience of an earthly father very much colors the way that we are inclined to see God, right? Because that is the most visceral experience of fatherhood that we've had. So if we've had an absent father, if we've had a poor father, it's quite possible that our lens through which we view our father in heaven is skewed by that because we've experienced an earthly father, and none of us are perfect earthly fathers. I I, I like to tell my kids, like, thank God You guys have a perfect father in heaven, right? Because I'm going to try my best, but I'm going to mess up. I'm not always going to do the right thing. Dad's not always going to make the right decision. Dad's not always going to respond in the right way. But we all have this perfect heavenly father who always does the right thing and who always responds in the right way and who always knows what's best. So as a result of all of this for some of us, many of us have never experienced the true sense of freedom that should accompany life in Christ. This deep and and abiding freedom that comes from recognizing that death has no bearing on you. And not only is that true, it costs you nothing. Death has no bearing on you, not because of something you've done, but because of something Jesus has done He has paid the price. It should be this massive, soul-filling, joy-producing relief to learn that it's not actually up to you. It's not based on what you do or don't do. It's not based on what you produce. But then we come to today's text. And what does Jesus say? He says, you must be ready. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So what do we do with that? How do we, people who are holy and capable of righteousness on our own, who are dependent on the righteousness of Christ, if we want to be made right before the Father, how do we get ready for the coming of the Creator of all things? How in the world... Do we prepare for that? As we've said, Advent is all about this. It's all about preparing and looking forward and longing mentally, physically, spiritually for the fact that Christ has come and he will come again. And when he comes again, he will bring judgment. That's what scripture teaches us. Judgment isn't something we like to talk about. Over the last 40 or 50 years, the church in America has made a massive turn away from Scripture towards something called universalism. It's in the water in many places. The idea that everyone, no matter what you believe, no matter what God you think is real, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, everybody will go to heaven. That there is no hell Why? Because God is love. And and there's no way that a loving God would ever punish anybody. This is what people are inclined to believe. People have published whole books propagating the notion that since God is good, maybe when we die, everybody will be given a second chance. But that is based on nothing more than speculation and wishful thinking. Now, Jesus is abundantly clear. He is returning And when he returns, he will bring judgment with him. And a few significant things will be true. First of all, when Jesus returns, there will be no denying that he is Lord. Look with me at verse 29 in our text today. Matthew 24, verse 29. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the first time Jesus came, there was a lot of denying that he was, in fact, Lord. There was a lot of denying that he was, in fact, the son of God. In fact, most people were inclined to say this is not the king of the Jews. As we read last week, they mocked him over this as they were crucifying him. They put a sign above him that said, this is the king of the Jews. This week, what we read is that when he comes again, no one will be able to deny it. No one will be able to say, oh, no, 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 this isn't him. It will be so abundantly clear. It will be so supernatural in nature, even though the first time he came was abundantly supernatural in nature. But notice that when he came the first time, Jesus showed us what real kingship looks like in the kingdom of God. And things that he said, he lived, such as the first will be last. And then we should love those who persecute us and pray for them. How in the world do we get ready For the kind of king who is returning on the clouds with great, holy, heavenly glory. The kind of king who will send out his angels ahead of him with a trumpet call. How do we get ready for that? The second thing we know from scripture is that he will come at a time when people don't expect him. Which I just go, could be any time, right? Because most people aren't expecting him. Most people aren't looking for the Son to return. Look at verse 37. I think this is a key part of understanding this text. He says, for as, it, for as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. One passage in uh, First Thessalonians says he's going to come like a thief in the night. And that's an allusion to the words of Jesus here as well that we read. Right, The master of the house knew at what time in the night the thief was coming, he would have been ready. The third thing we know to be true is that there are some people who will be ready and some who want. Verse 40. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So in other words, there will be people who will be totally blindsided by this. There will also be people who will not be. Do you guys remember a few weeks ago I did the illustration about Humpty Dumpty? If you weren't here, you weren't here. Um, If you weren't here, I I, I said, if I asked you to draw a picture of Humpty Dumpty on a whiteboard, what would you do? More than likely, you would draw a giant anthropomorphic egg with a face on it and legs and arms. And yet, the nursery rhyme about Humpty Dumpty says nothing about his physical appearance. And yet, for most of us, for some reason, when we think Humpty Dumpty, we think giant egg. Well, the reason why is because that's how we've seen him depicted in like children's literature and in cartoons and movies and that kind of stuff. And the point of that is when we come to the Bible, we have to be very careful to actually read what's on the page, actually read what's in the text, and not superimpose things that we've taken in from other sources, right? We don't want to take what we've heard about the scriptures and try to apply it to the scriptures. We don't want to take what someone else told us or what we just happened to read in some book and apply it to the scriptures. We actually want to look at what is on the page and read the scriptures contextually. So the whole Humpty Dumpty illustration applies to this passage. And as we read about people standing in a field and one being taken and the other left. I don't know if we are aware of... The impact that the Left Behind book series has had on how Americans think about the end times, about how Americans think about the last days. I don't know how many of you guys have read any of the Left Behind books, but that series has sold over 80 million copies, 80 million copies. Let me give you just a little bit of perspective on that. Most of the Harry Potter books, like some of the best-selling books in history, have only sold around 65 million copies. There is a very, very short list of books that have sold more copies than the Left Behind series. And they're things like The Lord of the Rings. So I mean, just massive books. So unprecedented numbers of people have read this. People who have never read the book of Revelation or they've never read the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah but they've read the Left Behind books and they've watched the Left Behind movies. And so they think they have a perspective on what the scriptures say about the end times. So here's the thing. In the Left Behind books, a very particular position is put out there. And, and it's what some people call the rapture. Uh, that's not necessarily terminology that is found in the Bible Um, Instead, rapture theology is more of this speculative theory that comes from a very particular understanding of the Bible. And, And I just want to be clear, like there is great room for generosity and charity in views of what is going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. Because our understanding of this is based on prophecy that we find in Scripture, which is highly symbolic. And so, if you start digging into what's called eschatology, which is just the study of the end times and what the Bible has to say about the study of the end times, what you will find is that there are 400 million different positions on what is going to happen when Jesus returns. And for the most part, we can hold different positions on what's going to happen when Jesus returns, and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. These are, in most cases, decidedly like secondary positions. But I also want us to be clear as we're reading today. The Bible does not say, as happens in the Left Behind books... That people are just going to vanish suddenly and their clothes are going to be neatly folded like in a stack where they were before. And so planes are going to crash and trains are going to crash and cars are going to crash and like the world's going to be thrown into turmoil. And like the Bible does not paint that picture. Right. That that comes from this fictionalized account of what could possibly happen based on this one very specific position on the end times. And so you may go, God, I don't care about any of this. Why are you talking about this? But as we're looking at this text today, for the majority of Christian history, the position I just described has not existed. It has really only existed within the last 150 to 200 years and really only in America. It's a very American way to think about this. So yes, our text says one will be taken, one will be left, but notice the context here is the story of Noah. It says, in the days of Noah. What happened in the days of Noah? What happened in the days of Noah was that Noah was not surprised after he built an ark and gathered animals into the ark and gathered his family into the ark that it started raining. Right? Noah was not shocked because God said, here's what's going to happen. And as a result, Noah began preparing he built this giant boat. He was not surprised when suddenly a flood came and picked up his boat and carried him away. But believe me, other people around him were shocked. And other people around him were surprised because their lives for years in the way that it had for Noah did not revolve around building a boat so that the family and all these animals could survive a flood. So I think our understanding of this should be fairly simple, and I'll kind of bullet point it out for us today. Number one, we know that Jesus is returning. We know that Jesus is returning, and honestly, I think that should be the biggest point here. Jesus is coming back. Secondly, we don't know when he is returning, but we should be preparing ourselves. Jesus is returning. We don't know when, but we should be getting ready. Three... We know that when he returns, he will bring judgment. Scripture is abundantly clear about this. All people will not be saved. Those who are in Christ, it's going to be good. Those who are not in Christ, it's not going to be good. That's number four and number five. And then finally, number six, Jesus will make all things new. And those who are in Christ will live as children of God in the kingdom of God forever. I think those are really the main things that we need to hold on to. And the the things, the points from Scripture that are just kind of abundantly clear and irrefutable. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. We need to be ready. We need to be watching and waiting for him. When he returns, he's going to bring judgment for people who are in Christ. Judgment's going to be a great thing because God's going to look at us and see the righteousness of the Son that has been laid on top of our lives. But for those who are not in Christ... It's not going to be a great thing. It's going to be a terrible thing that will involve weeping and gnashing of teeth, according to Scripture. But then finally, Jesus will make all things new. As we read just a few weeks ago, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will all live as children of God in the kingdom of God forever. The basic irrefutable teachings of the Bible. Now, some people want to go really deep and get really detailed about, well, this is going to happen at this point in time, and it's going to be this many years, and it's going to be this long. I worry, guys, honestly, that that can be used as a tool of the enemy to distract us from what we really need to be focused on, which is preparing for the coming of Christ. Turning with me real quick to the book of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians, we're going to chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. And here's what he says. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So again, remember Noah. Noah knew at some point a flood is coming. Maybe he didn't know exactly when. No one around him believed a flood was coming. Everybody thought he was an idiot, but he knew what was happening. So he didn't sit around and do nothing. He knew what was coming, so he went to work. He didn't go take a nap. He didn't go get drunk and just lay around. That actually comes later in the story of Noah, after the flood, but that's a that's a whole other thing. Noah there was work to do. I've got to build a giant boat in the middle of the desert. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, you know all these things. Like, I'm not giving you new information here. You know all these things because you're living in the light of Christ. You're not living in the darkness of sin. So Paul says, being ready is largely about clothing yourself in the spiritual armor of faith, hope, and love. And that we should be encouraging one another and and building one another up and bearing one another's burdens and like helping each other be reminded of the gospel truth. That it's not based on what we do, it's based on what Christ has done. Back in Matthew 24 and 25 Jesus tells a few different parables to describe what it looks like to be getting ready. In verse 45, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus then continues in Matthew 25 with what's known as the parable of the 10 virgins. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So here's the thing. If you have faith in Christ and if you believe the words of Scripture, then you believe that Jesus is returning and that we are closer to that moment now than we've ever been in human history. So when he does return, the question is, will you be somebody who's going, what in the world is going on? Or will you be somebody who goes, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for this. Finally, this is happening. And I really believe, based on the example of Scripture, the way that you respond in that moment will have everything to do with whether you are in Christ or not in Christ. And whether or not truly your life has come to center around Jesus. If your life is oriented around Christ in the way that Noah's life became oriented around building a boat. Then it's going to be impossible for you to be surprised when the flood comes. If your life is oriented around Christ in the way that Noah's life was oriented around building the boat, which took decades to build. If you're being filled with the gospel, if you are spending time daily in prayer, if you're resting on the promises of Scripture, if you're coming together with the church, other believers who are seeking to follow Christ, if you're placing your faith, as Paul says, your hope, if all of those things are in him, then when he comes, you will say, "Finally, he's here." You'll be like the virgin who remembered to bring some oil, or will you be the one who says, "You know what? I'm not. I'm not sure any of this is actually real. I'm not sure he's really coming. It's been like two thousand years since he came before, right? He hadn't come now, and he's never gonna come." There will be many who will be surprised. There will be many who will be caught off guard. But there will be those who have positioned the whole of their lives around the truth that Christ has come and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. And when that is the thing that you position the whole of your life around, then you will le- live differently because the Spirit has empowered you to live differently. You will see your work differently. You will see your purpose in this world differently. You will see your resources differently because you know the master is returning. And so this morning, as we enter into Holy Communion, let us take a few moments and reflect on the posture of our hearts where are you at in your life right now? If you're somebody who could honestly say, you know what, I would be completely blindsided if this happened in the middle of the night tomorrow night or if it happened five minutes from now, I would be completely caught off guard. Or are you somebody who could say, man, I, I have no hope outside of the gospel of Jesus, right? I have no joy outside of the gospel of Jesus. I have no peace outside of the gospel of Jesus. And when he comes, you're not going to be shocked. You're going to be so excited because everything that your life has been about is now coming to fruition. That's why each week we, we light one of these candles. And it's not just a ritualistic thing. It's enlightening each one of these things. We remember what Christ is, who he is. So this candle today is all about hope. You might think your hope is in your retirement or in your money or in your children or in your home or in the material things of this world. But this candle reminds us that all of that stuff will pass away. The only real hope in this life, in this world, is Christ. And our future is based on the fact that he will come again and make all things right. So Let us pray together to that end this morning. Father, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you for the hope that we find in Christ Jesus. The incredible blessing of your gospel. That you extend grace and mercy to us. In spite of who we are. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because somehow we were worthy of his death. But quite to the contrary. So, Father, teach us how to live as people who are vigilant. Help us to recognize that the work of sanctification that you are doing in our lives is a work of preparation for the coming of Christ. So help us, Father, to submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit and obedience. Help us to truly seek in all ways to orient our lives around you to make you the center of all things. That we would be truly people who are shaped by the values of your kingdom and who are propelled out by the values of your kingdom and the mission of Christ and the fact that Jesus is coming again. We love you, Father. It's in your name. Amen.